Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Athletic. The only way to score is, of course, to play uh, with a handbrake off. Hello, I'm Ian Stone. This is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. We're recording this on Friday morning, the day before. The North London derby at the Emirates. Arsenal women will take on Tottenham women in front of at least, it says here in the script, 45,000. But in fact, it's over 50,000 now, I believe, which will be a record crowd for a domestic women's game in this country. Uh, to talk about it and the midweek draw with Ajax and one or two other bits and pieces, uh, Art de Rocher is here and Tim Stillman is here. Uh, morning, chaps. Good morning. Good morning. Morning all. Nice to see you. Look. What we thought we'd do uh, is we'd come up with an all-time Arsenal women's five-a-side team uh, that each of you got have, uh, have got to come up with. I'm sure you've thought long and hard about this. Tim, I'm going to come to mm. you first. Uh, we also want you to name a manager as well. So, uh... Yeah, look, so the manager, I think, is relatively easy. It has to be Vic Akers, the Don of Arsenal women. Um, yeah. I, I think that kind of goes without saying, although Laura Harvey would be in with a shout. So my team, and I want to stress that I've constructed this with five aside in mind. So my 11 aside team might look slightly different, but I think a great five aside team. Emma Burning goal, definitely. She actually, she was spotted by Arsenal playing Gaelic football um, as well. So a bit of multidisciplinary there. She's actually quite a good footballer as well. My defender, Leah Williamson. Again, in terms of five-a-side, really good small spaces defender, brilliant passing out from the back, can dribble as well, dream five-a-side defender. My, my midfielders are Kim Little, again, dream five-a-side player because she's brilliant um, when she's getting crowded out. She's great in small spaces, possibly the best dribbler in women's football, I think. So definitely Kim in midfield. Alongside her in midfield... I'm going to have Jane Ludlow, the club's record goal scorer from midfield. And Jane was an attacking midfielder, hence the fact she's the club's record goal scorer. But she transitioned into a defensive midfielder late in her career. Hard as nails. Again, brilliant five-a-side player. And up front, really difficult. Really, really yeah. difficult. But <laughs> I've gone with Kelly Smith because, you know, sorry Viv Miedema, sorry Marianne Spacey. I just can't have a... T- if it was... One player, if it's one aside, it would be Kelly Smith. So Kelly Smith is my forward. So that that's my five-a-side team. Yeah, and I would agree with some of those, really. Art, what are you saying? <laughs> I was joking with Tim before we started that it's probably going to be a very similar team, and it really is. So I've also got Emma Burning goal. I think Leah Williamson as a defender was probably just the easiest call to make. Actually, no. Kim Little in midfield was the easiest call to make because I think every almost every time you watch her play, you're reminded again of how superior she is technically to other players. Even when she is under 
probably more pressure than she wants to be. I think she's still able to escape that. And then the one difference I had was I went with Danielle van der Donk alongside her in midfield because I feel like I spoke to Tim about this yesterday, actually. Her being a bit more, say, aggressive, I think that would work well in a fives game where you have someone who can snap a little bit more. And her being also still very technically good, I think, lends itself well to to that midfield. And then I also went with Kelly Smith up top because I felt like going with Viv Miedemar would be a little bit of a cheat code. So so, um, very similar teams, I think four of the same players. And then we just had, I guess, a difference in style in in our midfield. But um, yeah, I, I feel like a lot of people would have quite a similar team. Yeah, I mean, I like how much thought you guys have put into this. I'll be honest with you. And now I'm not, I'm not just saying that because my team is old school, really. My old man, um, who Tim, I'm sure you would have, if not met, heard at Arsenal Ladies over the years, um, used to go all the time to watch Arsenal Ladies. And when he used to uh, talk about them, this is when they were Arsenal Ladies, uh, uh, and it, and the players he chose, Emma Byrne, uh, Faye White, Kelly Smith, Marianne Spacey and Alex Scott, right? It's, it's basically gone old school. This was the Arsenal women's team back in the day when we were winning every trophy and unbeaten for three seasons, or uh, certainly some of them are in there. Uh, so I've got a bit more old school. Uh, manager, by the way, has to be Vic Akers, really, just because the whole thing was essentially his idea, wasn't it, really? And uh, also the only man to wear shorts in a blizzard, as far as I can tell, <laughs> aside from my postman. Uh, anyway. <laughs> North London Derby on Saturday, one thirty at the Emirates. Uh, the current record for attendance, 38,262 between Spurs and Arsenal. Tim, you were there for that, mm-hmm. weren't you? Um, as was Abby, our producer, um, who says she doesn't remember the atmosphere being fantastic, but that was possibly because it wasn't a great game. Is that the truth, Tim? Yeah, I think it is. I think also one of the reasons that sold so well, because that was the first season I think, at Tottenham's new stadium. And I do think there was an element of people going to look at the stadium as much as to watch the game. Abby's right, it wasn't a great game. Arsenal won 2-0, but um, Spurs basically played 10 players in their own box and it took about an hour for Arsenal to score. It It wasn't the kind of... It wasn't a game to get the blood pumping. And I do think there are a lot of people kind of staring at the concourses and the stadium and the architecture and things like that. So I, I do think this Saturday will be better. And also Spurs gave away loads of freebies for that one, which Arsenal haven't. Pretty much 95% of the people inside the stadium on Saturday have paid to come in. So I think that adds a little bit extra as well. And it's an art. You know, I I mean, certainly you guys have watched more of the women's game than I have. Um, but I, I did watch the Tottenham-Arsenal game on TV last season. And... <laughs> It takes about 10 minutes or so, but then suddenly it's our red shirts against their white shirts and you can't help yourself, can you? I mean, you are, even if you're more of a casual fan like myself, it's Arsenal Tottenham and you get involved. And I sort of feel like that atmosphere is going to be there on uh, uh, tomorrow morning, tomorrow afternoon. Yeah, I think as well in the past, say, season. So, yeah, the games you would have watched last season, I think there's been a lot more edge in those games as well. At the Emirates, I think it was Katie McCabe getting in a scrap. Surprise. <laughs> um, I, 
<laughs> and um and I think um before that there was a lot of needle in the in Tottenham's home leg which was played at the hive. And with that I just think that almost builds into the atmosphere itself because it's not just another game. You can actually see the players that really want it and with that I think you're gonna get probably a better better entertainment value in, in what you're watching as well as good football. You'll probably see a lot more emotion, which I think people want to see in football. Yeah, I mean, there is more needle now, isn't there, Tim? I watched the Ajax game the other day. There were some tackles flying into mm. that. I mean, there's nothing, no fighting or red cards or anything like that, but there were some serious challenges going in there. And, and I was thinking to myself, yeah, we saw that in the Euros, but you sort of understand it in the Euros. But in this game as well, I, I mean, that was, that was a really combative match, I thought. It, it really was. And Ajax have like this really kind of aggressive, high pressing approach and expecting Spurs tomorrow to be maybe, maybe not as much pressing, but definitely aggressive. And that's why um, it kicked off a little bit last season. There was a really poor challenge on Leo Volti, which uh, Katie McKay took exception to giving birth to possibly one of the greatest photos I've ever seen at a football game of Katie McCabe looking like she's winding up a haymaker was literally a queue of Spurs players um, <laughs> behind her. But but yeah, I, I, I really think that. And I really think that that more than anything is what's important in terms of selling the games. It's, it's the idea that it means something. Yes. And that's why there, there'll be hopefully six games at the Emirates this year. This one, I'm sure, will sell the best. And it's not because it's going to be the best game. Because Arsenal are quite a bit better than Spurs and should beat them. But it's because it means the most. And I, th I think you'll really see that tomorrow as well. And it had the lead up as well, didn't it? With the Euros. And there was a lot of talk about the women's game. And then suddenly they're selling tickets. And obviously we've got the top scorer and the player of the tournament at the Euros. Uh, and the captain uh, of the team playing for the Arsenal. Um, do you think there will be home advantage, Art? You know, I mean, it's going to be, you know, 50,000, 60,000 gooners in the stadium. I mean, you'd hope so, <laughs> wouldn't you? Yeah, I, I think it'd be hard to say no. What I would say is I, I like when there is a bit of, say, contrast in there. So a lot of the time, say, in the women's Super League games at Meadow Park, there will be like a cluster of away fans together, but sometimes they might mix and I think that was the case last season when Chelsea came to the Emirates. There was a bit of mixing in the crowd and you still could hear them. I remember Beth Mead saying that she actually liked when the Chelsea fans were booing her. But I think if you had them all grouped together and in strong numbers, it would just create more of a cauldron, I think, of noise. Even when you have, say, 50,000, I'm pretty sure maybe like, 46,000 of those maybe Arsenal yeah. fans even if you had quite a decent number of Tottenham fans in there as well I think that would just make the players better as well because they they know someone's actually there praying for their downfall as well yeah, um, can I just um, chime in as well on on the kind of the idea of needle I just want to draw attention to one of Jonas Eideval's quotes after the game last year when Tottenham had this very aggressive approach and he was asked about it. He said, it was a game between two very different styles. I'm glad the football team won, which is which is very Jonas, <laughs> to be honest. 
But you know, just just that little bit of that little bit of undercurrent, that bit of needle, and Jonas Seidervall is definitely very well positioned to kind of to give that little bit of stick. He's he's very good at the barbs like that. Great, and that's I I do think we like that, don't we? I remember Pochettino a couple of years ago saying Tottenham Arsenal was the right sort of hatred, and as much as I didn't really want to like a Tottenham manager, I thought yeah, actually, you know what? That's exactly the sort of thing we're looking for. And as for the the away fans in the stadium. There's nothing. I mean, the Emirates has got a great atmosphere now for the men's games. There's no doubt about it. But what I used to enjoy more than anything was was those games where the FA Cup and the League Cup games, where where smaller teams would bring eight, nine thousand fans, and you'd have noise from them as well. And I, I think I think that definitely adds something. So uh, hopefully there will be a little knot of uh, of Tottenham fans that we can uh, abuse <laughs> in the right way. In the right way, listener, you understand what I'm talking about. One uh, thirty in the afternoon. I mean, is that the right time for a kickoff? I'd like to see a game like this under lights, Tim. Yeah, I I think I think it probably is because usually. What we're kind of talking about in the men's context when we're talking about wanting kickoffs later and with the atmosphere and things like that, what we're really getting at is people being in the pub before the game, (laughs) like adding to that noise. And I think in a women's game, it's slightly different. I think it's going to be slightly more family oriented. Lots of kind of uh, parents there with their kids, not least because it's very affordable to come to this game as well. So I don't think that's as much um, an issue this time round. And last season, I mean, what happened last season, the game was supposed to be played on a Saturday afternoon during the men's international break like this one. And it was postponed because um, Spurs had some COVID cases. Funnily enough, they're, they're quite quiet about that. Tottenham's social media team not making videos about that one. Uh, and it was replayed on a Wednesday evening in May and it, and it halved the crowd. So you probably had like a more adult crowd at that game, but probably the atmosphere suffered a bit. Certainly the turnout suffered a bit. So I, I actually think that this is this is all right for a women's game. If Even if for a men's game, you'd probably want a 5.30 or something like that. Yeah. And and, and one more thing, Tim. Uh, any other any Spurs players Arsenal should be wary of? I mean, we are a better team than Tottenham, although the game last season that I watched, that was it the one-all where we equalised in the last minute? That was a pretty close game. Spurs are more defensive, but uh, as we saw in midweek, you can get caught on the break as well. Anyone dangerous in that Tottenham lineup? Yeah, the, there's two players I'd look at. Ashley Neville, their right wing back. She actually generates most of their threat. Um, I think she had their best like attacking figures last season in terms of goals and assists, and she scored the opening day of the season. So they do a lot of their attacking through there. Another player I'd say to keep an eye on is Drew Spence in the Spurs midfield. She signed from Chelsea this summer. Maybe a smattering of boos um, from Arsenal women fans with long memories because she put a pretty poor challenge on Kim Little a couple of years ago, which broke Kim's leg. But a very experienced kind of campaigner was at Chelsea for 10 years. Um, I'd say in the grizzled veteran category. And if Spurs are going to go with this kind of aggressive approach, I would expect Drew Spence to be uh, kind of front row and centre of that. You just don't hear the word grizzled enough, do you, Art, really? I mean, it's just absolutely fantastic, really. Anyone else, uh, Art, before we move on? No, I think Tim covered it, basically, uh, especially when you consider what their approach is likely to be. Um, I think the Drew Spence... Drew Spence battle would be quite interesting to watch unfold. Yeah, uh, let's talk about uh, Leah Valti. Um, I mean, she made her 100th appearance uh, on Tuesday against Ajax. Uh, Tim, tell us a little bit about uh, Leah Valti. 
Yeah, tell me if any of this sounds familiar, but she's been playing as a number six, uh, the kind of the deepest midfielder at Arsenal for a few years. She captains the Swiss national team. Last season, she moved into a more advanced left eight role. Don't know if any of this is ringing any bells to anyone. Has she wandered off in a strop at any time? (laughs) I mean, Not yet, not yet. No, okay. Brilliant, brilliant player. Really, like, I think possibly the most two-footed player in men's or women's football in the world. So last season, she's right-footed. Last season, she played 52% of her passes with her left foot. And the seasons before that, it was 52-48 in the other direction. So she's basically Cazorla-like, like a perfectly symmetrical footballer. Um, her teammates call her snake hips as well because of the way she's able to kind of wriggle away from pressure. She grew up doing a lot of winter sports in Switzerland. So she did some ice skating and it's given her this like really, really nice balance. And she's just got this... Because she's so two-footed and she can go either way, um, you know, she's got that Cazorla-like ability to wriggle away from people. But brilliant, brilliant player, real leader um, in the Arsenal team and someone who, like her like her compatriot, uh, compatriot over in the men's team, has kind of learned a new role in the last year or so. Yeah, I mean, you both spoke with her uh, on Tuesday night. Uh, let's hear a little of that chat, talking about her positioning. I mean, I think Jonas uh, needed those defenders for us to play that game. I think you need um, defenders who want to also attack the ball, who are brave enough to go into the tackles to be able to push your team forward. And that is really important for us. I think um, that gives us confidence and trust as well to make that step forward to then... Um, yeah, that they win win the ball even if it comes uh, uh, over us. Did that trust come automatically or did it have to come over a bit of time? I think Leah as a player, I've played a couple of years with her, we know about her strength and I think with her the trust was always there. With Rafa it was a bit different because she was a new player so you need to get to know each other a bit and that takes some time but I think right now we're in a really good place. And just on yourself as a player, playing right foot and left foot, I was just wondering is that something that was coached into you from uh, quite a young age or is it something you had to kind of work at yourself? Um, actually, we got. I spoke to Noel about that because we went both to the same boarding school. We literally always had to do push-ups if we used the, the wrong foot um, doing passing drills. So I think it was something um, our coach at that time really paid attention to and I think I have to, or we have to thank for, uh, for that team. The Noel referred to at the end of that clip is Noel Maritz art. Oh press-ups for some of the players if they don't do something they're meant to do? I mean, it, I guess that's a good idea, isn't it? A bit of boot camp type thing? <laughs> yeah, just a little bit more incentive, I guess. Yeah. Um, players should I be think, two-footed, though, shouldn't they, really? I, I know this debate comes up a lot. Who's and I think, even debating it now? I mean, I, mean, I no, understand. Listen, when I grew up, <laughs> players who were two-footed were sort of freaks, really. There were very, very yeah. fr- few. And everyone used to go, well, Maradona's only one-footed and look what you can do with that. And <laughs> that's a fair point. But now, the way that training is, the way the teams get them so early, they should be, shouldn't they? I don't know if they should be, but just because you see so often that players aren't. And I, I just don't think it comes into a lot of people's, I guess, education, football and education. You can see, say with uh, Walty and Moritz, that's been going on for them since they were in boarding school. Yeah. And that just doesn't happen a lot in, say, in England. Uh, it doesn't really happen that often. So I don't really think it's a they should be as good off one foot as they are the other. But you would like, especially here, you'd like it to go into that direction. But I, I just feel like 
it will take a lot of almost retraining um, to do that once you're past a certain age. So you almost have to get that into them before they've reached their late teen years when they're breaking into a first team because then you're just probably adding another bit of baggage onto them before they they make their their most important strides in football. I, I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right. You have to get them early. Uh, but, Tim, you were talking about uh, Santi Cazorla there. I remember him taking a corner once where he was going to take it with his right foot and then went, oh, no, and then just shifted over and took it with his left foot. And it was a thing of wonder to all of us. <laughs> They're going, how did he do that? But it's totally natural to him. And, and surely with a player like Leo Volti playing in midfield, you want to be able to turn both ways, don't you? Yeah, definitely. It's like Art said, it's a bit like learning a language. It's much easier to do when you're younger. But I, I'm kind of more with you, Ian. I think you're a footballer. Your feet are the most important tools you have for your job. So you should be able to use both of them. And even if it's harder, like, I mean, being equal on both feet, I don't think that's possible unless you learn it as a kid. But being competent on both feet, I think you can. You really can and you should. And you can see with a player like Leah, the advantage it gives her because of the way she can turn. And like last season, one of the reasons she used her left foot so much was because Arsenal's left-footed centre-half was out with injury at the end of the season. So she went into that space a lot and it was so useful for Arsenal. I remember uh, last season, if we're talking about like, say, just Arsenal as a club as a whole. And we look at the men's team asked. Uh, Arteta about Tomiyasu because I think everybody noticed it with him playing at right back and it it almost just opens the pitch up as well if you have it in different positions because you have different passes that you can make if you're able to use your left foot from right back you can probably just go inside a lot more often and he said it's the way they've been taught from young but he also said at Arsenal they would like to kind of implement that so I wonder with especially Jonas Ederval saying that there's better communication between the women's teams, coaches and the academy coaches. Is that something that they might try and implement across the board in the academy? I think that would be quite interesting to see develop over the next few years. Uh, well, we'll talk about that very thing, that that communication between Arsenal women and the academy uh in uh, a short while. This is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. We were a bit uh, with the handbrake at the time. Ian Stone here with Tim Stillman and Art de Roche. Uh, we've been talking about the um, Arsenal women's team playing Spurs uh, tomorrow. By the way, you were both at the Ajax game. Uh, an opportunity missed, wasn't it, Tim? I mean, we were we were all over them, really. Got the 2-1 lead, and I thought, all right, we'll kick on now. And it was played in their half for about 90% of the game, and then they broke away and scored a really... It was a bit of a soft goal, wasn't it? And, I mean, it, it's not like Arsenal aren't... Are Arsenal still favourites to go through? 
I, I think so, yeah, just about. It was never going to be an easy game. I think what was interesting about this game really is Ajax kind of shaded the first half and Arsenal were maybe a bit lucky to go in at 1-1, but the second half was completely one-way traffic yeah. and Ajax really had one attack and scored from it at a time where I was really thinking, right, we're, we're about... It, it felt like we were on the cusp of the third goal, basically. But... You know, two two. The the fortunate thing is for us is that away goals isn't a thing anymore. So we've just just got to go to Amsterdam and win the game. Now, away from home, it may be Arsenal women have lots of Dutch fans because we've had lots of Dutch players in recent years. I think that stadium's going to be at least fifty percent Arsenal, maybe more. So it might feel more like a home game atmosphere wise. I think if Arsenal play like they did in the second half, they'll win this tie. But it's certainly closer than I think they'd have wanted it to be going into the second leg. Uh, yeah. When is the second leg, by the way? Is it next? Wednesday night. It's Wednesday night. Okay. Well, uh, one thing we have been uh, writing and talking about is Arsenal women and other women's teams in general training with their club's academy. And Art did allude to that uh, beforehand. I mean, Art, who... Who did it first in terms of training? I mean, I've I've read about this with other teams. Was it us who did it first? It usually is when it comes no to women's No way. Well, it wasn't, actually. <laughs> right, okay. No, I, I don't think it would be right to claim that. I think Tim's probably more well-versed in this, but I know he's mentioned it happens in the US a lot and Barcelona and Chelsea too. I think um, probably it was happening abroad more so than in England first. Um, Tim, is that the case? Uh, but... Yeah, yeah, it is. So the US, I'd say the US, probably the pioneers um, of it. But but in European football, Barcelona have been doing it the longest. And what tends to happen is that basically the women's teams play the kind of under 15s. They lose a couple of times. But once they come up to that physical level, they start to win because they're more experienced, more rounded footballers. It's just that that physical gap exists initially. And that's why Arsenal are doing it, because uh, when they played in the Champions League last season, they faced a couple of teams who had that aggressive high press, a bit like Ajax had on Tuesday night. And Arsenal didn't deal with it very well, because not a lot of teams in the WSL do it. Now, the reason Arsenal hadn't done it before is because the previous manager, Joe Montemoro, was much more focused on possession and less on the physical side. Jonas Eideval wants Arsenal to be a pressing front foot team and to be able to cope with that high press in Europe. So he kind of spoke to Per Mertesacker about playing the junior boys teams to help them come up to that physical level. And also, I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit more, but it just creates a cooperation throughout the club uh, as well, which is, which is why someone like Pear would have been very open to it. Yeah, and when you see the way that, um, you know, when, when uh, Mikel Arteta signed his new contract, Jonas Ardeville was signing his as well, there's obviously... It, 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 there is a huge amount of cooperation already going on. Um, before we talk more about it, uh, let's have a listen to uh, the former England goalkeeper Karen Barzi on the Athletic Women's Football Podcast talking about this very thing at Manchester City. I mean, for as long as I can remember, it was it was always trying to find the best opposition you could in training. So sometimes, yeah, that would be you know your own team. But when you've got the good fortune of being in an academy or in a club that has another boys team like such good opposition and it's such good tests for 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 the players I always love training alongside the lads as well because for a goalkeeper as well the strength the speed the power the backlift is is different in the, in the men's game there's hardly any backlift so you have to be 
kind of riding that knife edge all the time, being ready to set, being ready to move. And I think that would, would e- equally transfer to outfield players as well. I think it was 2014 up until maybe 2017 or something like that. We were training alongside some of the <laughs> some of the 18s and things like that. So it was always um, you kind of hold your breath a little bit if you were caught in a one v one situation with a, a 17 or 18 year old lad and you're just going to get absolutely burned. So, um, you so had to be for you that would have been your... that would have been Phil Foden, right? <laughs> well, I mean, there were a few that were probably playing, you know. Uh, championship or prem at the minute so that's um yeah that's pretty weird isn't it <laughs> to think about uh yeah that was uh, karen barsley on the athletic women's football podcast um <laughs> i mean like you say tim this pressing game that they're not used to and it's and the energy i mean i'm surprised that the arsenal women weren't playing with the energy or is it just about the press that we're talking about here really because because you want to be playing a high intensity game now if you're playing professional football in any team, surely. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it is mainly just because it's not a chat, because most teams Arsenal face in the WSL kind of collapse back into their area, put numbers behind the ball and Arsenal have to break them down. Whereas in Europe, you know, they played Barcelona last season, they played Wolfsburg, Wolfsburg they played yeah. Hoffenheim. Yeah. Um, and they, they, they struggled with that approach a little bit. But also, I think um, Jonas talked about it as well the other night in terms of it improving Arsenal's press to go and press kind of um, older teenage boys. And look, by the way, we're having this conversation when someone who is eligible to play for the under-15s has just played for the first team. So we're not talking about your average 15-year-old boy here. We're talking about Arsenal-level 15-year-old. Like, we looked at Ethan uh, Nwanieri. He does not look 15, right? If I was serving him in a bar... If I was serving him in a bar, I wouldn't ask for ID. No, no, right? I agree. So, yeah, so I, you can see what you're up against. Yes. Um, I mean, it was interesting. I asked my son. My son is uh, is season ticket holder with me, uh, uh, the men's games. And um, he's, let me say, a little sceptical about the women's game, I would suggest. And he heard about what was going on. He heard how... And I think it was Arsenal women who got beat 5-1 by the academy in the first game. Is that right? I think it mm-hmm. was. And he was saying they shouldn't they shouldn't tell people about that result because it's an ongoing process. And I sort of understand that, Art. As we've said, the team will improve and they'll end up beating them. But it's not a good look, is it, to lose to the under-15s as much as they're not like regular 15-year-old kids. Yeah. Well, what what I would say is they didn't, purposely put the result out there just kind of almost by mistake someone wanted to show show what they did in the game and that's how it came out but I I would agree that those the results aren't really what matter in those situations so if you can it would be wise to keep them quiet um, because you know how especially people on social media will react um and that's not really the purpose of the games anyway. When talking to uh, Jonas Edeval about it, it was very much about the benefits of getting that, I guess, exposure would be the right word, to the physical demands of both pressing and being pressed. And I think you saw, although they only managed to do it, I think it was once so far this summer, um, and they do plan to kind of take it forward. They're not sure whether it's going to be 11-a-side games again or just more 
training sessions, but um, I think you've already kind of seen a benefit of it in how they press Brighton on uh, the opening day. And also it, at times against Ajax, their press worked really well in terms of being able to force the ball back to the goalkeeper and then the goalkeeper being forced to hit it long. Yeah. And and then you have Leah Williamson and Rafaeli Souza there who are like uh, 1,000 feet tall <laughs> to, to win the ball back. And I think it's almost like they're in the teething phase of it at the minute. And you're seeing some good moments, some not so good moments where they may almost forget their responsibilities a little bit. But I think overall you're going to see an upward trend as the season goes on. Um, I mean, in terms of strength and conditioning, I know that the women's strength and conditioning coach came in from the academy. Obviously, there's the benefit of keeping it in-house. I mean, these are all massive steps forward. I guess they have to change their approach slightly, Tim, just because, you know, women's physicality and physiology is just different from the men's. Yeah, definitely. And there's things like the menstrual cycle um, to kind of uh, contemplate as well, which is a a big part of like strength and conditioning and periodization for female athletes. And and you're right, there is an adjustment. But uh, Pordy, his name is the strength and conditioning coach that's come across from the academy. Obviously, that's also like I don't want to make out like he's on work experience or something because he's not. But it's good for their development as well. And he's been working through the academy. So even if, you, you know, if you're the strength and conditioning coach for the under 15s and then you go to the under 17s, there's a difference there. There's a difference in what those athletes need at that at those stages of their development. So going across to the women's side, I'm, un, I'm unsure on what, not my area, sports science, what the courses are like, but I imagine they cater for, for all genders. Um, but it's But it's good for their development as well. And, you know, just to keep that, we've seen Manchester City are doing this, have been doing this with the City group for a long time, kind of keeping all that expertise in-house and networking and swapping ideas and things like that. So I I wouldn't be surprised if we see more of this from Arsenal, uh, this kind of synergised approach over the next few years. Yeah. One more question. And I know it's sort of that question that it's often asked. Whatever happens in the women's game, there's there's that sort of, that understanding, well, where can it go from here? How much further forward can it go? I mean, we've got a game tomorrow where there's going to be pretty much a sold out Emirates watching a women's league game. I mean, this is, <laughs> this is an astonishing uh, thing, really. I mean, we sort of take it for granted, really, Art, but it's going to be 60,000 at the Emirates uh, or near enough tomorrow to watch a WSL game. Is the next step to get full houses in, in the main stadiums for all the games or is that just not feasible? I don't see any reason why it's not. When, when this is Arsenal women's first game of the season at the Emirates and you've got 50,000, I know it's Tottenham, so so there's an added incentive. But when you consider the, the next games that come along, I would expect them to be against big opponents like Chelsea and Manchester City wide, yeah. and then the Champions League games as well. I don't see why that's not an attainable goal, especially when this is your kind of starting point. I, I feel that... The Emirates Stadium is a massive draw because of its location as well, because when you look at where Meadow Park's situated, of course, people will go out go out there to see the games, but it is a really long way to go. It's almost like adding another hour, maybe more, onto your journey. So I think that helps their cause as well when it comes to these games. Not only is it the men's stadium, but it's much easier to get to. So I think people will be more 
willing to 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 actually pay to go. And then as as you say, if if you go from Tottenham, a really good game at the Emirates, and then just build it up even more, I, I don't see why you can't get sixty thousand in, say in the springtime when the weather's good again. Um, and you're hopefully, fingers crossed, touch wood, in, in a title challenge. <laughs> well, quite. And Tim, obviously, you're going. I mean, you've seen the crowd build up in the last few years, haven't you, really? And obviously, mm. we were, me, me and Amy were on here last week talking about you know people like Wrighty and allies for the women's game. It just needs more of that, doesn't it? And more, um, well, more major international trophies would help as well, I guess, really. <laughs> yeah, you can you can see what a multiplier effect that had. This fixture, again, when it was supposed to be on a Saturday afternoon in March, sold about 20,000. Yeah. Now we're looking at 51,000 sold as of Friday morning. So you can see what a multiplier effect that's had o- overnight, basically. But really, like Art was saying as well, like filling out Meadow Park regularly, that that's... That's very attainable. They sold out the Brighton game. Two and a half thousand on Tuesday night for the Ajax game for a qualifier. The other big advantage that the WSL has is it's going to play during the Men's World Cup in November. So the next WSL game at the Emirates is against Manchester United. That's in November while the Men's World Cup is on and there's not a game uh, in the Men's World Cup that day. So it's it's another like blank weekend. In fact, a blank six weeks in terms of the Premier League. So that's another real chance to build on this attendance. I, you know, I'm not sure and a game other than Spurs will sell this much at this stage, but I don't see any reason why we can't get like 30,000, 40,000 for United, then Chelsea in January. I, I really don't see any reason why not. I, I think the flag's in the ground now very firmly. Yeah. Um, okay, let's have a song to end. Uh, Tim, you haven't done this before, but uh, basically what we do is we just basically ask our guests to come up with a song in some way vaguely related uh, to what we've been talking about, although Art actually doesn't really bother. He just gets, he just gives us the top of his playlist, as far as I can tell. But Tim, what have you got? So are you talking about a player song or a song as in like what might have been last on my on my kind of uh, <laughs> Spotify rotation. You can choose whatever you want, but have a player song. Give us a player song then. I okay. like that. I, all right, a, a player song in the spirit of Saturday. I, s- some girls came up with a brilliant chant for our new Swedish signing, Lena Hertig, uh, to the tune of Abba's Dancing Queen, um, which scans beautifully. Uh, um, Lena, our, 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 what, what was it? Our, mag- our super magic Swede, and she just happens to wear the squad number 17. But I think that might be a bit long and a bit involved for the crowd on Saturday. So the one, <laughs> the one I'll recommend is the Caitlin Ford song, one of our Australian attackers. She's red, she's white, she loves the Vegemite. Caitlin Ford. Let's have 50,000 people singing that on Saturday. <laughs> okay, uh, what have you got? Again, this has no correlation to I know. football. I know, it does. So well. I knew that straight away. Is this, is this about some animated character that anyone uh, over 22 has never heard of? Is that what you're saying? Th- this one actually isn't. Um, I watched Little Miss Sunshine for the first time in ages the other Great day. Great film. Um, and I, I remember the first time I watched it, I loved it. Um, and the, there's this one, I guess you'd call it the score, I guess. One song in the score called The Winner Is and I just couldn't get out of my head. So I'll go for that in the hope that the winner is Arsenal. Well, we all 
do. Uh, I'm having North London forever uh, this week because it is a North London derby and and it, it it doesn't matter. It's Arsenal against Tottenham. And, uh, you know, get down there, by the way. There are still, uh, as we're talking, about 9,000 tickets left. Get down to that game. Sell out the M's for, uh, for this game and get behind the girls. Um, Anyway, there you go. That's it uh, for this edition of Handbrake Off. Thanks to Tim Stillman. Thank you to Art De Roche. And thank you to Abby, our producer. And thank you, listener, for listening. Uh, I'm Ian Stone. This has been Handbrake Off. See you soon. Ta-da. Handbrake Off.